Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Rick Banks. I am a law professor at Stanford Law School and one of the co-hosts of this weekly program. We scour the nation, and sometimes other nations as well, in search of speakers who can offer well-informed insights or perspectives on the issues of the day. Part of what makes this program unique is that our experts are given only six minutes. That's right, only six minutes to present. The presentations are then followed by a Q&A period during which we pose questions to the experts and they pose questions and challenges to each other. The result, we hope, is an unusually informative, provocative, and entertaining discussion. What happens next is designed to engage a wide array of views. We are not aiming to promote any particular viewpoint so much as to provide listeners with the information and perspective to better understand some of the developments shaping our world. Sometimes our experts' assessments are sobering, even somber. To balance that, we end each program with a one-minute note of optimism from each speaker. What Happens Next has grown considerably since its inception. From its humble beginnings with a few dozen listeners, the program now has become a community with 3,000 registered participants. We also have a website, What Happens Next in 6minutes.com. You can stream and download full episodes or you can select individual six-minute segments along with the Q&A. Episodes are also available on iTunes and Spotify. What Happens Next in Six Minutes with Larry Bernstein and Ralph Richard Banks is the title, and that's my full name. Please do subscribe to the show, and, if you, if, and remember that if you subscribe and rate the program, it will make it easier for others to find us. Now I'm pleased to turn it over to Larry Bernstein, who will introduce the speakers and their topics. Thanks, Rick. This week's topics include the COVID vaccine, containing Chinese military and political power, business formation, and the opioid epidemic. Our lead-off speaker today is Dr. Jay Levy from the University of California, San Francisco Medical School. Jay is a long-standing expert in infectious disease. He is credited for discovering the HIV virus that causes AIDS. I have asked Jay to discuss four COVID-related topics. Number one, how should public health directives be designed for viruses relative to bacterial infections? Two, why is it so difficult to develop treatments for viruses? Three, could there be permanent negative side effects for taking the Pfizer COVID vaccine? And four, what are the risks of reinfection from COVID? What happens next then pivots to containing China. Our first speaker in this segment is Professor James Holmes from the Naval War College, who will speak about the challenges the American Navy will face in dealing with a more aggressive and technologically advanced Chinese maritime power. James has a new book entitled Red Star Over the Pacific that discusses the problems of containing the Chinese Navy. Our second speaker is Daniel Markey, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Daniels has a new book entitled China's Western Horizon. Daniel's work explores the impact of China's Belt and Road Initiative on its Asian neighbors. China's economic investments in its neighbors has expanded China's sphere of influence, which undermines local control and complicates American foreign policy. Our third speaker in this segment is Rory Metcalf, who is the head of the National Security College at the Australian National University. Rory has a new book out entitled The Indo-Pacific Empire. Rory will discuss the growing alliance between India, Japan, Australia, and the United States to contain Chinese military power. 
What happens next then moves to the subject of labor economics. Our first speaker in this segment is John Huttelwanger, who is a professor in labor economics at the University of Maryland. John will be discussing new business formation. John has written extensively about changes in business dynamics and the problems of declining business dynamism due to slow responsiveness to various economic shocks. I want to learn from John how U.S. firms will adapt to this very important COVID shock. Our final speaker today is Casey Mulligan, who is a labor economist at the University of Chicago. Casey was until very recently the chief economist at the Council of Economic Advisors in the Trump administration. Casey's new book is entitled, You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. I've asked Casey to focus on two topics that he investigated in government, what we can do to better manage the opioid epidemic, and second, the cost and consequences of the Jones Act. For those of you unfamiliar with the Jones Act, it is 1920 law that requires that all goods transported by water between two U.S. ports must be carried on U.S. flagged ships that are manufactured in America, owned by U.S. citizens, and crewed by Americans. All right, let's get started. I'm now going to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Jay Levy. Dr. Levy, as I mentioned, is at the medical school at UCSF, and will be discussing uh, the COVID vaccine and COVID reinfection. Go ahead, Jay. Fine. Thank you, Larry. I thought I would put an umbrella and call this the challenge of infectious diseases and use COVID as the pandemic, which involves the agent, in this case a virus, and the host response, which is the immune system. So first, for the virus, I think it's very important to recognize that this virus is different from a bacterium. A virus is extremely small. It would, have, uh, it would take 50,000 times to be able to see it in an electron microscope whereas a bacterium you can see just with tenfold. The virus is like a piece of salt. It, doesn't, it can't grow on its own. It needs to get inside a cell, particularly a human cell, and replicate, whereas a bacteria can live on common nutrients, probably like the size of a jelly bean, if you wanted to look at it, uh, but it needs uh, nothing more than nutrients to grow. So when we are talking about a control of this pandemic, it seems as though... We're looking at it as if it's COVID, as if it's E. coli, when you really should be seeing this as a virus, where when it replicates, it produces multi, many thousand more non-infectious particles. So it really would have a hard time coming from mail or from the uh, food or from uh, paper uh, uh, bags into your nose, or your mouth, and so practically it would mean that you really need to do just what is said, wearing a mask, not uh, having six feet uh, distancing, wash your hands, and don't be in crowds. You don't have to worry about tabletops, doorknobs, uh, and so forth. Now, when we look then at what we can do to block this, we, of course, looked at medicines. But medicines are difficult with viruses. With a bacteria, you just have to stop it replicating. With a virus, you have to get inside the cell and show that that is able to block it from replicating, and then it just stays latent or it dies. And what we need now is a way in which you can take care of COVID, for instance, by a good medicine. Remdesivir blocks its ability to replicate, but uh, the drugs that we use or we will develop need to be able to get inside a cell to block this virus, and therefore, you would probably see more toxic effects. 
because you're going to get the drug into normal cells, and normal cells may not be able to tolerate the drug. So when we're trying to find a good medicine, it requires that we get by the toxic effects, and this is what drug companies face. Now, when you look at a vaccine, and I'll talk about that in terms of what about the immune response? So you have two types of major immune responses, uh, which are a antibody that you hear talk about, which is a floating substance that will attach to the virus in this case and destroy it, or cellular immune response, which are white cells, we call them T cells, that can interact with an infected cell and kill it. And that would destroy, of course, the virus. So what happens here is that if you are trying to develop a vaccine, you want to increase its antibodies, you want to increase the cells that are going to attack the virus. But in fact, in fact, if you overdo it, it has to be a balance, you will find that you can't get, uh, you've got to be careful that you don't enhance the immune response so much that you get symptoms. Because one of the first things that one learns is that when a virus infects you, particularly a respiratory virus, many of the symptoms are really due to the immune system trying to get rid of that virus. So if you increase it too much, it would be getting more of your symptoms, uh, which would uh, which inhibit and may even destroy some of the organs uh, in the body. So we need to then find a balance there. And, and there is an, another aspect of the, the immune system is that if you first immunize someone with a vaccine, you, you lock in a memory. So if you have a vaccine that is not quite as good as one that later comes, you may lock in the memory so when the later vaccine is given, the memory comes through and you have the response that you had from the first vaccine. So we want to remember that. Uh, the other uh, aspect is what are these vaccines? So the normal, the vaccines we've all got may be a killed virus vaccine or one that is um, shown where just the proteins of the virus are seen. We have a new type of vaccine, which is the Pfizer vaccine which takes, takes into consideration that this virus has a genetic structure, it's called an RNA, and if you can get that, the RNA making a, a copy of itself and then grab that RNA, put it in a lipid coat, then it can inject, when injected into someone, start making the proteins that the RNA is programmed to make. So those are the building blocks. So if you can get the the, the proteins made in, let's say, injected into an arm, you would then have an immune response against those proteins and effectively block the virus, particularly the spike protein of the virus. The other type of the vaccine is a DNA vaccine, which you may hear about later with AstraZeneca, uh, where you put the protein, the genetic makeup of the virus inside a DNA virus. You inject that in. The DNA virus replicates a bit and the proteins are made of the virus. So essentially, what we're dealing with is, can we get enough of each of the vaccines to, in order to protect the individuals if they are in contact with this virus? The question does come up, if that occurs and you are immunologically capable of fighting off the virus, can you be reinfected? Well, one of the rules that I learned in virology is, yes, you can always be reinfected with measles, mumps, chickenpox. 
But what happens is that virus may get in you, may replicate a bit, but your immune system, through a memory response, makes enough of antibodies or cellular immune response to take care of that, that entering virus. So we can look to these vaccines that are coming to see if we have enough memory and see if we can get it to be used in a way that can induce the best cellular and antibody responses. And finally, we got to be able to get to a point with the new vaccine that it can be produced in a way not have to be frozen at minus 90 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, uh, but can be stored easily and easily distributed. So uh, the challenge is there. I remind you to the end that the, until we have a vaccine, to wear a mask, six-foot distancing, and, and avoid crowds. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Jay. We're going to go directly to Q&A with Jay first. Jay, um, one of the most important points I think you made was this concept of memory for a virus. And you said that um, if you get a first vaccine, uh, that memory dominates over, I'll call it a second memory for a second um, vac vaccine. And what I, the question I have for you is this. Um, is it correct that... When, whatever first vaccine we take for COVID, that will be almost uh, a permanent side effect for the individual. So that if you take potentially a better vaccine in the future, uh, it will be as nearly as efficacious um, if you had taken that one later and, and not had the first vaccine. And so does the patient have to really consider which vaccine to take first because of its uh, such important um, initial impact for memory purposes. That, that, that is, of course, the concern. It's called the concept of original sin because you were first immunized with one vaccine and you may have locked into the memory a response to that vaccine. But I have to say that the vaccine companies are well aware of this. I just raise this as a point in terms of reminding people that if you want to make sure that the vaccine is really effective. And one of the ways we do that is by immunizing more and more people. So, uh, Larry, so, you, so besides the original sin story, you have to concern yourself with the side effects and what will happen if you go from the 60 or 70,000 that were immunized to 6 million. Gerald Ford learned that in the, when he went and immunized all the United States, or most of the United States, in, uh, and with the flu vaccine, and while it was very good in small groups, even in the thousands of people, when it went to the millions, you started getting neurologic diseases, and it really affected a lot of people. So we've learned from that that you can't jump in right away. So besides the original sin, you want to make sure there's no toxicity. And just to kind of follow that through, um, the, the, the Pfizer vaccine, it's, we're told, is 90% effective. That was, their, that was the headline. When you hear that, um, Jay, what does that mean to you? It's, it's fantastic. I mean, no, no, no vaccine at the beginning will give that good a, a result. But again, it's a simp much simpler virus than a vaccine or some of the others that you have been immunized against, a measles virus. But um, that's the early stages. I think if it gets to 70, 75, we'll be really, really, really pleased. It may be that good because, again, I mentioned it's a messenger, it's an RNA vaccine that is then no, no need to make 
the RNA from a DNA, as we have with other vaccines. The RNA is right there. It makes the building blocks, the proteins, and the immune system can then see it right away. So it's much quicker. It's less complicated and first time used. So we'll see. The, the ones who developed this uh, were trying to make a cancer vaccine where you take uh, RNA from a cancer cell, put that into a vaccine, give it to people, and you you could make it very, very uh, uh, targeted so they would target that particular cancer. Uh, that hasn't worked out yet, but it led to this discovery. Maybe I, maybe I misheard you, Jay, but it sounds like you said that or you implied that the effectiveness of the vaccine would likely decline as it's tested on larger and larger populations. Is that correct? And if so, why would that be? Well, because you have such a genetic diversity in when you're immunized. I'm sure they didn't use older people. Well, they may have used but not enough of older people, compromised people, uh, autoimmune people with autoimmune disease that may have a different response. All this is into the formula, and you need to consider that. So you pick, you pick that, the best group you can so you can at least get started, and then we have to learn that they may change. But I'm not saying this won't work. I mean, this is a brand-new vaccine approach. I just say stay tuned, and let's hope it really comes close to 90% protection. Okay. Is there, is, is there any reason, based on your expertise, is there any reason for people to be hesitant to take the vaccine when it's first made available? Well, of course, that's the pre question I'm getting all the time. Uh, the fact that Tony Fauci said he would take it is a big plus. I would I, I like to see what the results are in terms of looking at different groups, groups that are at the older crowd, like myself, over 65, and uh, see if it, uh, the response is as good. Uh, it depends as well as uh, what's your, what's your uh, chance of getting exposed. I work in a hospital setting. I, try, I actually do research. But people that are first responders, they really have to have this vaccine in order to protect them. The only thing you're really worried about are the side effects like a neurologic disease. I mean, I, don't, I say only, but the fact is that you need to balance it. Uh, I tell people, let's stay tuned, see what happens when they give the next, I think in a month they're going to give uh, another reading of this vaccine. Uh, and if it looks as good as it does now, um, you should get a vaccine. Okay. So you're, you're, just, you're not concerned about the original sin for Pfizer? Uh, I raise that just as an issue for the, I'm really more for the pharmaceutical companies. You don't hear people saying a word about that. People always say, well, I'll wait for the next vaccine. It probably is better. But you have to realize if you get the first one, it may dampen that effect. But they know that. And I think we'll, they'll yeah. be aware of this. Jay, have, have there been other cases where that has happened, where there was a vaccine made available and it turns out it wasn't quite the right one, and people took that, and, you know, they may have suffered long-term because they took the first one that wasn't the right one? Well, they wouldn't have suffered. They wouldn't have been protected. And this, this right. came up, this uh, concept of original sin occurred in the 1960s with the flu, the early days with the flu vaccine, and that's where they realized that if you came up with a better flu vaccine then, uh, you got the same kind of immune response that you had with the first. Right. I want to switch back to your opening statement, Jay, about um, it's a virus, not a bacteria, and therefore we should not do uh, bacteria-like protections. When the COVID scare first started, we were told not to open our Amazon packages. Uh, we were told to wipe down every surface all the time. 
um, you said, you know, go ahead and wash your hands. Um, and there were lessons on TV that we should wash our hands for like 20 minutes um, and really do a thorough job. Is, is, is the lesson to be learned that we should, um, there's nothing wrong with washing our hands, but don't, it's better to wash your hands more frequently than to wash them at great length um, and don't go crazy? Well, your last statement is the most important. I, I really want people to use their common sense, which means the, the public health instructions and so forth. It's amazing what's happened because we weren't really instructed by, the I think, the national uh, approaches that this should be treated like you retreat uh, measles, mumps. Uh, you, you, you don't want to worry about this virus hiding into a package or on food or things like that. You don't need to wear gloves because gloves actually block what I didn't have time to talk about, which is an innate immune response. Our mucosal membranes, our hands, they're covered with uh, small molecules that are part of a very, very quick-acting innate natural immune system. So if you wear gloves, they're not going to be there if you happen to touch the virus. But remember, if you touch the virus, <laughs> it's, most of that is going to be non-infectious. And you're talking about then getting that virus from the tabletop or from, the, uh, from a bag uh, or from, let's say, the, the top of a banana and putting it in your mouth and have it infect when you will, that whole transit and the chance of you picking up an infectious dose is extremely small. So I, I just want people not to be uh, confused in terms of what they really must do, which is to say this is a respiratory agent carried by the air. Look at what you're doing. Wear a mask, which is really the only thing that's so important because you don't wash your hand, you're going to wash your hands anyway. I've, I visited uh, someone whose hands were red because she was washing them every hour. You see what happens when you, when you destroy common sense? And just think of this, and you will be really, really safe. And then um, the issue has to do with uh, viral load, as you were mentioning. Um, and because it is a respiratory issue, um, it's really being in closed spaces, which is so potentially catastrophic. How do you feel about being in a room and having a window open or being with people outside if you must uh, meet with people? How do you view inside versus outside as a reasonable approach to doing work and uh, social intercourse? The number one thing is you're much safer outside. The beach can be the safest place you can go to as long as you're not in crowds because you have the breeze going. Uh, Mike also has this adage that uh, the solution to pollution, which would be the virus in the air, is dilution. This fits perfectly. And if you're inside, you open the window to get that current, but you, you really need to wear a mask if you're in a meeting with people and so forth if you uh, aren't outside. And I think that depends on whether you know the person you're with, the people you're with, and that gets to deal with as well. Family members, uh, always coming up now with Thanksgiving, what are you going to do? If you can have the whole Thanksgiving outside, which is a little tough, even in San Francisco, you really need to know, are, have these people quarantined, have they been safe, and, and not in large crowds. Um, but the, the quick answer is, I don't know if anyone's been infected by being outside. Oh, that's amazing. Um, I guess my, my final questions would be about treatment. Um, let's imagine that you've just been notified that you have COVID. Um, 
what would you recommend uh, that patient do? What would you re- when would you recommend going to the hospital? Um, and how should you rationally uh, care for yourself? And they have symptoms. Either either or. You just well, you, you got a test. You are, you are COVID positive. If you go and now get what? tested and you're positive, you quarantine. And that's it. You quarantine because you can pass it. Now, uh, there are gradations. Is there any drugs you would take? You have to see someone, you wear a mask, and so forth. If you have symptoms, there really is not anything. Even remdesivir is not a drug uh, that you can take, uh, and definitely not hydroxychloroquine. Uh, it really means that we don't, the only, frankly, the only virus that we have some good uh, antivirals for now is HIV which is one of the hardest viruses to cheat. So if you can lock in to the, the processes that the virus takes to replicate in the cell, that's a really big breakthrough. And, but as I mentioned, because this, you, give the, you take a pill, let's say you've been infected, you take a pill and you're trying to be, uh, and they're trying to avoid off the virus. It'll go into every cell that's infected by the virus as well as all the normal cells. If it happens to be a little toxic, the people will not want to take this. And you need, therefore, to recognize that it's different than treating a bacterial infection like E. coli, which you just have to get the darn bacteria while it's outside. Just to follow up on one last vaccine question, let's imagine that you had uh, COVID. Um, and you had a positive result, and now you're you know, you're, you're, you think you're cured. You mentioned concerns about reinfection. Would you have someone who has already had COVID, would you recommend that they take a vaccine as well? You know, it's the same question they talk about shingles, chicken box. If you had shingles, should you take the vaccine? Well, the story is that the vaccine is not needed because you already have an immune response. Now, I don't know, I don't think anyone knows if any of the vaccines will help boost get you sooner as immune response against the virus. I've got to say my own concern is I wouldn't want to boost my immune system to the extent that happens in some people where their immune system overreacts and they get all the symptoms that are caused, including the clotting, uh, the the, the stuff that would be uh, part of the syndrome of a sepsis. So, you know, it's really difficult, and I'm sure... Most vaccine groups will be saying post-infection vaccination. Can we do that? And they're going to have to look at a large group. They're not going to recommend it until they make sure you don't make the symptoms worse. Okay. Jay, thank you very much. Um, We're going to go on now to our second segment, uh, which is containing Chinese military and political power. Our first speaker today is James Holmes, who is Professor of Maritime Strategy at the Naval War College. He has a new book entitled Red Star Over the Pacific, China's Rise and the Challenge to U.S. Maritime Strategy. Uh, Professor Holmes, are you ready to go? Yes, thanks. Uh, So I want to start off with a disclaimer and then dispute the premise of the question that's been posed to me, which is uh, how how is the United States Navy going to contain China's Navy, the People's Liberation Army or PLA Navy? And I hope you'll see the method to my madness as I go along. First of all, the disclaimer, 
Containment is a loaded term because of the Cold War. Uh, containment was both a policy and a strategy. The label does not fit our China policy today because China is not the Soviet Union in the late 1940s when the containment policy took shape. This is a very different ad- adversary wanting a different approach. Now, the label does accurately describe our military strategy in the Western Pacific, even though I, I seldom use the term myself. But in fact, uh, using military power in concert with geography to hamper Chinese maritime movement is straight out of our Cold War playbook. In, in any event, getting the lingo precise is a virtue. Now, on to, the main, uh, to my main remarks and to, and to contest the premise of the question just slightly. And you'll, I hope you'll see there's a purpose to my nitpicking today. Our Navy is not going to contain China's. Sea power is no longer just about fleets or even just about navies. This is an age of joint, meaning multi-service sea power, when land-based air and missile forces can strike far out to sea against navies. Indeed, that is the very premise behind China's anti-access and area denial strategy. China assumes its Navy remains weaker than ours, but it hopes the combined firepower of the PLA Navy, Air Force, and Strategic Rocket Force is enough to hold us at bay long enough for Beijing to accomplish its goals, whether that means invading Taiwan, seizing the Sinkaku Islands, or whatever. We will do the same, using forces from the U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, and even Army to imprison China's Navy and merchant fleet within the first island chain. Small bodies of missile-armed ground troops on the islands will fight in concert with naval and air forces around the islands, sealing off the straits to Chinese egress into the western Pacific. We will make the first island chain into a solid wall, or a metal chain, as Chinese strategists sometimes call it. For example, U.S. Air Force bombers now practice dropping with precision minefields at sea and firing long-range anti-ship missiles. The Army is equipping itself with Navy missiles capable of raiding shipping. So my answer to the question as I have redefined it is that U.S. joint forces acting as an implement of sea power in concert with allies such as Japan will contain Chinese joint forces within the China seas to the best of our ability. Corralling the merchant fleet puts the economic hurt on China, while keeping the Navy penned up in confined waters brings a host of operational and strategic benefits. So this is a way to make sense of the daily news out of the armed forces. The U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard are pursuing something they call naval integration and have even taken to calling themselves the Naval Service, singular. We are trying to make ourselves into one fighting implement rather than three affiliated but separate services. The Marine Corps, under General David Berger, has been driving this effort ever since he took over as Commandant in mid-2019. The Marines are remaking themselves as a service that helps the Navy deny our adversaries control of the sea and eventually win it for ourselves. That is quite a departure from protracted land combat in Iraq or Afghanistan. And it's why you hear Marines constantly talking about concepts like expeditionary advanced base operations or little operations in a contested environment. These are fancy ways of saying they are planning to land small units on Pacific islands armed with anti-ship and anti-air missiles to help China's Navy, or excuse me, to help deny China's Navy access to nearby waters and skies. They will make mayhem and then perhaps skedaddle to avoid Chinese counterfire. Our Navy is pursuing an initiative called Distributed Maritime Operations, which basically means buying lots of small warships that pack a punch and that we can afford in bulk. The logic behind a big fleet of small ships is that we will lose ships in combat. There is no escaping that China's strategy and forces are formidable. This is a potential foe who deserves our respect. But spreading out firepower and sensors across numerous vessels improves the ability of the fleet as a whole to fight on and win, which is what it's all about in the end. 
These are concepts that I and a few others have been uh, pushing for about a decade now, so I feel pretty upbeat about our strategic competition with China. The more impressive our battle preparations are, the better our chances of deterring China from aggression. If Xi Jinping gets out of bed every morning and decides today is not the day to roll the dice, military containment will have accomplished something big. And who knows, if we can keep China in check over time, good things may even happen in the political realm. So I will leave you with that thought and reiterate that the first island chain is ours to lose. This is our defense perimeter, just as it was 50 50 years ago in the Cold War. Thank you. James, thank you very much. We'll come back to you in Q&A in a few minutes. In the meantime, we'll go with our second speaker, who is Daniel Markey. Daniel is a professor of international relations at the Johns Hopkins School. He is also the author of China's Western Horizon, Beijing, and the New Geopolitics of Eurasia. Daniel, please go ahead. Great, thank you. Yes, uh, so China's Western Horizon, this new book, uh, opens uh, near the beginning with a, with a regional map. And I point this out because uh, for many readers, I think it's quite useful. It shows uh, the, the neighbors of China spanning westward across uh, South Asia, Central Asia, and the Middle East. And it shows just in, a, in one picture how rather than seeing China as an isolated East Asian maritime state, we need to better understand China as being at one end of this uh, real uh, supercontinent of Eurasia. And uh, many of us uh, actually tend to see uh, Eurasia as kind of stovepiped into these subregions, but I think increasingly we need to recognize their interconnectedness. And in particular for China to appreciate how parts of Western China, Xinjiang or Tibet, are actually closer, both physically, but in many ways culturally, even ethnically, uh, to parts of Central Asia, to South Asia, even to the Middle East, than they are uh, to the Pacific Ocean. Now, Chinese scholars are uh, beginning, I think, to appreciate this, and their policymakers have pushed China to, to undertake significant new investments Westward, uh, Many of us have heard of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, this uh, something perhaps in the order of a trillion dollars of new uh, investment in infrastructure, much of which will be dedicated uh, to parts of continental Eurasia. And this is one of the biggest stories of this new era of China's rise, but I think uh, will have transformative consequences uh, for continental Eurasia, but is often overlooked, especially back here in the United States in Washington, and D.C. in particular, because we are so focused on the maritime competition uh, along China's eastern seaboard. Now, one story that I tell, uh, again, sort of at the opening of this book, is, uh, is about the, the new port of Gwadar, uh, which is along Pakistan's Arabian Sea coast. And as some of uh, the listeners will know, uh, about 20 years ago, China made uh, a plan to uh, begin to help Pakistan build out this port. And at that time, many of, uh, of, of the neighbors, including in India, but also all the way back here in the States, we, we saw this, many of the strategists saw this as potentially one of a number of what we called a string of pearls, of, of bases and places of Chinese influence uh, along the Indo-Pacific um, uh, littoral region uh, where China would extend its military power. But this telling of the story of Gwadar is actually incomplete, as I found from my research and conversations, uh, including with uh, the then president and military dictator 
leader of Pakistan, Pervez Musharraf. Uh, and the real story actually came in around January 2000 when Musharraf went to Beijing and actually asked uh, his uh, Chinese counterparts to begin building water. And he did this in a way that was a surprise to them. So far from this actually coming as a Chinese uh, initiative, this was actually a Pakistani initiative. The Chinese, I'm told by, uh, by Chinese sources, were actually skeptical about the idea of building this port. Uh, they saw that it was disconnected from much of the rest of the uh, transit uh, and transportation infrastructure of the region, and because it's also in a dangerous part of Pakistan uh, where there's an active separatist movement. But uh, Musharraf pushed this along, and he pushed it for his own purposes. Uh, first, for strategic purposes, to help him deal with India. He was concerned uh, with, with recent hostilities with India and believed that a new Arabian seaport would help put pressure on India and relieve pressure on Pakistan's uh, other port in Karachi. And also, he thought uh, it would demonstrate that Pakistan clearly had China's backing and might even spark some economic development in this region of Balochistan. Now, over the next 15 years, this, this port project struggled to get off the ground for exactly the reasons that the Chinese initially appreciated, for local reasons, not global reasons, for reasons uh, having to do with that separatist movement. Um, this opposition was really fierce and at times even violent. Uh, subsequently, and just in the past five years, as China began to rethink this Belt and Road Initiative and a, and a Pakistan-based variant of it, the China-Pakistan Economic Order, they came back uh, after that slow period and uh, doubled down on this investment, suggesting a degree of uh, Chinese opportunism, of strategic interest in the region that hadn't been there before. Now, what is, how does all this uh, come together? What it suggests to me, and this is a broader story, is that it's the push and pull of local interests, say the interests of Pakistan's military leader, uh, and Chinese interests increasingly in terms of expanding its economic footprint, but also its political and, and even military footprint that come together in a complicated interplay across this vast region. And as I extended my research to places like Kazakhstan and onward into the Middle East and Iran, I saw similar stories playing out which suggests that in order to understand what's happening across this region, and of course for the United States to respond smartly, we need to see this as an interplay. Uh, and to really understand that push and pull requires us to think locally and selectively about the interests of Eurasian actors themselves, to not simply start and end with the question of what Beijing wants or what Beijing is doing to see this not just as a theater of global competition, but as a series of important uh, individual relationships in and of themselves. So I'll leave it there, and I'll look forward to the conversation. Daniel, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Okay, our next guest is Rory Metcalf. Rory is a longtime Australian diplomat and intelligence analyst. He is currently the head of the National Security College, Australian uh, National University, and he is the author of the book Indo-Pacific Empire, China, America, and a Contest for the World's Pivotal Region. Rory will be discussing methods to contain Chinese power. Rory, please go ahead. Look, thank you, Larry. It's a real, a real pleasure to, uh, to be on the program. I'll talk about what's happening in this region, which we Australians are calling the Indo-Pacific, uh, this region around us 
that connects Asia and the United States and Australia. What's happening with Chinese power and disruptive influence? And what are the options in the content contest to really manage that and limit it and balance it, perhaps not <coughs> containment, but certainly to achieve a settling point that suits the interests of uh, liberal democracies and of a rules-based order. So there really is a major strategic contest or influence underway across the Indo-Pacific, this, this great maritime region spanning the Pacific and Indian Oceans. This is the primary theatre of China's strategic power play. and. I would argue that China is working on many levels to achieve uh, influence and indeed dominance. These levels include uh, military, look at China's military modernisation that we've heard about, particularly its naval modernisation. It's about economics the, and geoeconomics, that is the use of economics for strategic advantage, whether that's through infrastructure, through forms of investment, through attempts to dominate supply chains and critical technologies. Uh, it's a contest that's occurring in the realm of diplomacy bilaterally but also through regional organisations. It's a contest that's occurring through uh, tools of espionage and propaganda, both old and new. So it's a many-layered game. And I think a really important point to make uh, is that although this is at one level a US-China competition, uh, the Indo-Pacific, as Australia sees it, and as I see it in my book, Indo-Pacific Empire, is also a multipolar region. There are many players, there are many powers at work here. In fact, the overstretch that's built into China's efforts to dominate such a vast region with so many self-respecting countries with their own interests engaged, that very overstretch creates the conditions for pushback, for new coalitions of countries to try to set boundaries uh, against Chinese influence. Now that at heart is what I would call the, the Indo-Pacific strategic idea and it's an idea that really energises and mobilises countries like Australia and others, for example, Japan and India and Indonesia, these middle players, uh, in uh, contributing to this pushback. So I guess that takes me to um, another point I want to make, and that is who are these new middle players or these, these players in these new coalitions of pushback, and what can they actually bring to the table if we're going to work with the United States to create a stable balance in this region that suits our values and our interests. Well, I would focus on not only Australia, but also Japan, India, Indonesia, and even uh, some of the countries that are either not entirely of this region, for example, players like, uh, like France and some of the other Europeans, but also in some cases countries that aren't democracies as well, whether it's Vietnam or Singapore. But I'm going to focus just briefly on Australia because Australia has really taken a lead in the last few years in demonstrating what middle players and middle powers can do. At heart, Australia is strengthening its military, uh, modernising its military, uh, improving its naval and maritime capabilities so that we can defend ourselves and assist our friends. But Australia is also being very active in hardening its own national infrastructure against political interference, against uh, economic or technological sabotage. Think about the Australian position on, um, on 5G technology, for example. 
building our cyber capabilities and developing through our diplomacy new coalitions, the trilateral three-country arrangements with countries like America and Japan or Japan and India, the quadrilateral dialogue with the United States, Japan and India and others. And Australia is pursuing all of these dimensions as a way to contribute to middle power solidarity that sets limits to Chinese influence and coercion and helps the United States to remain engaged and indeed perhaps to engage more strongly in the Indo-Pacific. And I think the Australian experience is proving something of a role model for middle powers and democracies everywhere in the world at the moment. And that is one reason why China doesn't like it. China is bringing to bear its own levers of coercion against Australia economically and in propaganda precisely because of the example that Australia is setting. And that goes to the final point I guess I'd like to make in um, opening this conversation and that is what are the limitations to this middle power resistance and solidarity because of course in the end uh, China and the United States uh, have all sorts of levels and levers of power that the rest of us don't, even substantial middle players like Japan and India. So we've got to be realistic about what we can achieve. And that's where solidarity really becomes a key concept. Australia and others are building coalitions where we can try to set limits to China's bad behaviour, whether it's in the South China Sea or whether it's through foreign interference in our um, systems, in our democracies, but we can't do it alone and we don't want to create expectations that somehow, for example, a country like Australia is going to ride to India's rescue when it confronts China in the Himalayas, or a country like India is going to single-handedly help Japan if it gets into conflict with China in the East China Sea. So what's it really all about? I think we have to look here at the long game that we are playing. It's about building new levels of cooperation on technology, on intelligence sharing, uh, on supply chains, and on, uh, for example, uh, military interoperability, where middle powers can work with one another in the future, but also with the United States, and importantly, create the conditions that encourage the United States to continue to play a decisive role in the Indo-Pacific. And it's worth concluding with just two points there. One is that the Trump administration, for all of its failings and challenges to allies and partners, did at least set new boundaries to China's disruptive behaviour in the Indo-Pacific. Having said that, I think we've reached a stage where, looking to a Biden administration, we're going to want to see America uh, working with and galvanising partners and allies, not only at sea, but also in critical areas of uh, technology, for example, to set limits to Chinese power. And the big question, I think, facing America in this new Indo-Pacific era will be, is this going to happen uh, through America acting as a leader, or will it be America essentially being a major contributor to other balancing efforts that sometimes middle, plow middle powers play the lead role in? I'll leave it there, and I really look forward to your questions. Great. All right. Uh, we're now going to start the question and answer period. Um, let's start with Rory first. Rory, um, you mentioned that there are these four players, America, Japan, India, and Australia, which are going to be the I call the balancing act against Chinese aggression. Um, but it, it sort of 
a different coalition that we have in NATO. In NATO, they have this rule that if any one of the countries are attacked, it's attacking against all of them, and there's an expectation that they will rise to the occasion and make war against the aggressor. Uh, typically, Russia is assumed. Here, um, these four nations are getting together, and the question is, will they act in concert in a similar way, or will it be a more loose uh, and no Article 5 sort of situation? The example you gave was, you know, what would Australia do if, if there's a skirmish between India and China and the Himalayas? How do you think about that problem? Um, and if they, when we start with that, how, how do you think about the problem of the Chinese peeling off one ally at a time? Look, I'm not worried so much about the, 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 um, the risk of China peeling off one ally or one partner at a time. I think China has uh, achieved the extraordinary feat in recent years of alienating all of us at once. Um, and I think it's demonstrated that it will probably continue to do that. So I don't think China's going to co-opt one of us at a time or intimidate individual countries to such an extent that they don't lend any assistance at all to their partners during time of crisis. However, um, I also think that there are realistic limitations on what we can do and where we bring our strength to bear. And I think the, the answer here is twofold. It's partly that we use a coalition like the Quad to build one another's capability. In a sense, if Australia, the United States and Japan can do things to build India's uh, sovereign capability to resist Chinese uh, assertiveness or aggression, then that's a contribution in itself, whether it's sharing intelligence, sharing a maritime operating picture of uh, the Indian Ocean, uh, or perhaps indeed in the case of the US and India, of course, there's all sorts of defence sales and technology transfer there as well. Access to one another's bases uh, is another big thing because if you look at the Quad and maybe you add France to that picture in the Indian Ocean, uh, between us we have much of the key real estate for, uh, for resupply, for refuelling, for intelligence gathering uh, and, and so forth. The second point though is that the United States will continue to play a critical role and in fact it's going to be the US alliance system that tends to drive the more formal responses to uh, acts of coercion or aggression. So Japan and Australia are not treaty allies with one another, but it's very difficult to imagine a situation where the United States gets involved in military confrontation with China in the Indo-Pacific, and we don't. Through our alliances, uh, we will very likely have a role to play, even if it's uh, an intelligence role and a support role rather than always a frontline combat role. It's a long game. Well, the thing that I find the most confusing about the conversation in general is I don't really understand what, what the Chinese objectives are. Um, if, if we were having a conversation about trade and about economic opportunity in Australia, I think the conversation would lead us to say that China will be the most important player for Australia in the short, intermediate, and long runs. Australia is redesigning itself to provide raw materials uh, the, Chinese would, the Chinese will use and then sell probably to the Americans. Um, why do you think that China is being so aggressive, as you said, seeking dominant power in the region, uh, and upset the very people who are both the suppliers and the users of their goods? What, what's up with that? What, what, are they, what are they up to? Yeah, that's a great question, and we all wonder about that a bit ourselves. Um, I think, and my book makes the argument here, which I'm very happy to have contested, it's a, it's a live conversation, but I think there is a dynamic 
inside China uh, at the moment that, that quite inextricably ties the the power and control of the Chinese Communist Party, the model of uh, authoritarianism, indeed totalitarianism that we're seeing in China, with external assertiveness. In other words, um, the party needs to provide the Chinese people something in response for their obedience and the party's uh, and, and, and Xi Jinping's permanent legitimacy, if you like. And that can't just be economic growth anymore. It's got to be about uh, national power, about national pride, uh, about uh, a sense of siege against the rest of the world. And so this need for intensified authoritarian control at home has become tied with nationalist assertiveness abroad. And so China is actually disrupting the very regional strategic environment that it ought to be trying to stabilise for its own interests. How this will resolve um, is a great question. Uh, I think we'd all like to see the Chinese Communist Party move back to a kind of uh, moderate reformist path that it seemed to be on 20 years ago. That does not seem to be the case under this leadership. And I suspect instead there's a certain inevitability now to the dynamics of um, confrontation and crisis that we're, that we're all going to have to manage. I would say, Larry, that Australian perceptions of this have changed profoundly in the past few years and more and more Australians now see China at least as much as a source of risk as well as of economic opportunity. Thanks for that. And um, it seems to me that the, the first aspects of Chinese aggression that we may see in the region uh, may relate to Taiwan. And I wanted to use the previous um, challenge in Hong Kong as, as an opening. Um, you know, Hong Kong had certain treaty rights. Uh, Hong Kong was part of the Greater British Empire that you know Australia was part of, um, and these rights were violated uh, in Hong Kong. But there was a sense like, well, it's China. I mean, like, what do you expect Australia really to do about this? So, what did Australia do? How did it think about responding with a combination of the UK and the United States? And do you think that this sort of um, I'll call it half-hearted support of Hong Kong will be similar to what will be done in Taiwan, or do you think that Taiwan is a completely different kettle of fish? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's a great question. I think it's really important not to look at any of these things in isolation. And so, for example, you know, the, the betrayal of Hong Kong and the betrayal of the one country, two systems uh, agreement, if you like, uh, that that, uh, that China had signed on to, you know, that, that has sent a very powerful signal to the region and the world, um, if you like, about the um, about China's uh, strategic intentions and about the the difficulty we're going to have with, frankly, uh, you know, trusting China to abide by agreements, and that certainly has shaken up opinion in uh, in Taiwan. There's a much stronger um, sense there that uh, Taiwan needs to stick to uh, self-protection and its democratic rights and institutions. How did the rest of us respond? Um, I think, yes, of course, there was a, a half-heartedness, if you like, to uh, the reactions of a lot of individual countries internationally, uh, including Australia, in the sense that, that uh, you know, there are, there are limits to what we can or would do uh, to protect the rights of Hong Kongers. But there certainly was diplomatic outcry. There certainly was the, um, uh, the ending of uh, an extradition treaty. And importantly, I think there's now the building of increasing solidarity, and that's a key word here, with 
other democracies to, um, to find ways to hold China to account for this. I think we've got to bring the Europeans into this conversation and the Europeans are getting into this conversation. But, but in the end, um, Hong Kong was always going to be extremely difficult in, in this regard for us to have an impact on. Taiwan is different. And I think this is not just for Australia, but for Japan and for a whole range of other countries in the region and globally. Uh, the big question is what happens if China uses coercion or actual force against Taiwan? Uh, I think this would depend to some extent on the circumstances, but I still have great difficulty imagining a US-led response to um, Chinese coercion or attack on Taiwan that would not ultimately involve Australia and Japan and potentially others as well. Indeed, you could actually see the Quad come into play in those circumstances. You could even envisage a situation where, short of warfare, China conducts, uh, if you like, uh, close-in blockades of Taiwan, um, causing great damage to the regional economy. And as a result of that, uh, other countries, including Quad members, uh, have to impose, if you like, their own responses against, um, against China and, and things either escalate or are somehow stabilised through deterrence at that point. Do you think that we'll, um, we'll be successful in changing Chinese behaviour? So it all depends what, uh, what that change looks like. Um, is this about defeating China? I don't believe it is, and I think that uh, we have to work in a way that we're setting boundaries, we're setting limits, and yes, we're changing Chinese behaviour. Uh, if we can, if we, and by we, I mean not only Australia and the other middle players, especially the democracies in the Indo-Pacific, but really we being countries ranging from, you know, the United States uh, all down to some of the smaller countries pushing back against China, if we collectively can uh, identify costs to China's interests, not just reputational costs, but in the end, uh, actual costs. And if we can demonstrate a willingness at times to, to pay the price, and Australia is already willing to pay an economic price for taking a stand against, uh, against China, then I think over time, as long as China does not succeed in isolating us individually, we are going to bring about change. Because don't forget that in many ways, China's uh, rather extreme behaviour at the moment in recent years is a product of two things. One, of a kind of overconfidence. Um, I think there was a premature uh, perception uh, of American decline. I think America is far from finished in this region. But also a sense of quiet desperation on the part of China. China has huge problems that will come home to roost, whether it's, it's ageing demographic, whether it's the, uh, the environmental and other problems internally, whether it's the mistrust that China has sown in so many countries around the region, and in fact China's failure to build any sense of, um, of harmony with its own minorities, all of these things are going to get more difficult for China over time. And so if China wants to lock in its power and its gains, now is the time to do it. So now is the time for us to set limits that may actually become easier for us to sustain uh, 10 or 20 years from now. All right. What, um, I'd like to bring James and Daniel back in the conversation. Uh, a note to my listeners, if you'd like to ask a question, uh, please email me at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com. 
Okay. Um, I've received, uh, one of our listeners has sent a question in. Uh, the question is for James Holmes. It comes from uh, Roy McFarker. Roy previously worked as a member of Obama's White House National Security Council. Roy wants to know whether time is on our side or whether it's in fact on China's side because China may soon overtake us economically. Containment seems to work as a holding strategy only if you are optimistic about the long-term economic forecast. James, what do you think about that in terms of timing? Yeah, that's a, that's a question that we always pose to our students, especially when, especially in our senior course, which is, which, which is about long-term uh, great power strategic competitions of all types throughout history. So, and I, and I think you're absolutely right to talk about the fundamentals of, of American power. I mean, it's if we if we cannot afford to afford this strategy that I put out, that I think that, that we uh, embarked on really on the, during the Obama administration with the pivot or the rebounds to, to Asia continued on into this administration. I suspect we'll, we'll continue on uh, into the next one as well. But yeah, but yes, we we definitely have to keep our own uh, economic houses in order, or else we simply, we simply can't afford to do it. So that's a, I, you know, that's you know, I'm not, I don't think I have much of a better a better answer than that. I do say I, I, a lot of what a lot of what Roy, Roy uh, gosh, excuse me. A lot of what Roy was just uh, talking about. I mean, about uh, Ch- China's potential self-defeating behavior. I think I, I think a lot of that works in our favor as well. He, he was absolutely right. If you uh, if you look at China's demographics, uh, uh, they've they've created a huge long-term problem for themselves uh, through the one-child policy. Uh, they've, they've just uh, they've just done a lot of things that are going to they're going to, as he said, are, are going to become increasingly hard to manage. And, and I think so. And, and I think in that sense. I think that uh, time is actually on our side, just sort of by default, because I think China, I think there's a lot of internal trends working against China, and I think that's uh, and, and and Rory, I would actually like to reemphasize something that he said uh, right there at the end that uh, we, of course, when we teach strategy, we, we talk we talk about uh, the great uh, the great masters of strategy, Clausewitz and Mahan and so forth. Clausewitz teaches that. But sometimes it's, sometimes it's a good idea to be aggressive, to, to even to pick a fight if you think that the trend lines are going against you. So if China, if, China, if the Xi Jinping is looking around and he thinks that a lot of trends are about to turn against China next year, well, it makes sense to be aggressive this year and thus, and thus get what you can while you can. It's, it's a kind of now or never mentality that you, that, that's a recurring theme in history, whether it's Japan in 1904 against Russia or Japan in 1941 or whatever the case may be. So... Yeah, kind of, kind of a mixed answer there, but uh, but yeah, we certainly have to tend to the home front. Thanks, great question. Um, I, I have a question about thinking about the military strategy and the naval strategy in the Pacific. You know, um, before Pearl Harbor, I think America thought that uh, battleships were going to be critical, um, and it turned out that we ended up using the importance of the aircraft carrier and the island hopping. Um, but technology has changed dramatically since 1945, the last time we had a, a major Pacific War. Uh, the advent of the missile uh, changes in all sorts of technologies. When, because of these changing technologies, what will a, um, a naval war look like in the South China Sea? And what, what, what will be the key ingredients? Um, will having the ability to project power from the island of Taiwan, for example, be critical in its defense? Um, Tell us how does technology change the, the game? Yeah, well, I, 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 just to keep my remarks uh, within the time limit, I didn't get deeply into China's strategy, other than to point out that uh, point out that uh, 
as you, as you said, the military technology has come a long way since uh, since the Second World War, where, where we have uh, guided missiles, we have radar, we have all all these all of these things that uh, that would have been. Uh, I think that Admiral Nimitz or somebody like that back then would have been thunderstruck at some of the new technologies that have come about. What China, when the Pentagon talks, and this is the Pentagon's name for China's strategy, they call it active defense, which is another discussion, but the Pentagon calls it anti-access and area denial. It's basically about, it's basically about using shore-based, shore-based aircraft, shore-based missiles, uh, and just an array of instruments to augment the power of the PLA Navy fleet out at sea. So the idea, and you mentioned the first or the Second World War, rather. That's, I mean, it's 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 very much the same idea the Japanese had in the 1920s and the 1930s until they switched up at the 11th hour and attacked Pearl Harbor. But they were expecting the U.S. Pacific Fleet to uh, to steam across the Pacific, uh, probably to the relief of the Philippine Islands at the outbreak of war. And they and they and they figured out how to cut to basically use uh, land-based aircraft, seize Pacific islands, put put planes on them, use submarines and so forth to essentially essentially subject the Pacific Fleet to the to the death of a thousand cuts before a before a decisive naval engagement somewhere in the Western Pacific. That's a, that's that's kind of what China has in mind here. They expect that our Pacific Fleet will come from the West Coast and Hawaii and so forth, and that they will and that they will start cutting us down to size as we come across the Pacific, weakening us enough so that they can actually hope to win again a battle somewhere in the Western Pacific. So that's a, that's just kind of a, a brief you know sort of a quick and dirty on the on the idea. I, I've actually used the uh, uh, in some of my writings, I use the the metaphor of the crumble zone in your car. It's kind of like it's kind of like they put up a sacrificial component out in the Pacific, and they're going to going to try to cushion the blow as the Pacific fleet comes across. I mean, think about what you know, the crumple zone in your car does. It's not it's not a rigid component. It is designed to to collapse in a controlled way, thus sapping the energy out of the collision and keeping safe what you what you care about, which is you and your family and your pet or whatever's in, inside the car. So, if you think if you, if you think about that, I think it's they're trying to sap the sap the impact of the U.S. Pacific fleet activities in the Pacific and and, and thus gain time to do what they want to do. You mentioned the South China Sea. You mentioned Taiwan. Whatever the theater of, of conflict is, that's what they want. They want to slow us down so that they can get uh, what they want to do before we can actually intervene uh, with, much, with much chance of uh, reversing their aggression. Thanks. If, if yeah, I jump this in. Is a, Go ahead. Sorry. This is Dan here. I, I was wondering if I could just ask a, a question here because, um, sure. James, I, I imagine you're familiar with Chris Brose's book, The Kill Chain. You know, I haven't. There was actually a copy. I haven't been in the office for about six months, but yeah, we 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 have it as a faculty book. I have not gotten through it yet, but it's okay. everybody's raving about it. In fact, a comment. Yeah, well, at at the core of it, if if I understand right, uh, he's pretty pessimistic about uh, the U.S. investment in what he tends to call kind of exquisite, uh, big, complicated platforms that cost an enormous amount to build relatively uh, easier to target by, by Chinese forces. And what he'd like to see is something that, that you described a bit, uh, a much wider investment in a lot of cheaper, uh, kind of d more disposable forces, but ones that could still pack a punch. Now, I just observed in your remarks, you seemed a lot more optimistic about the path that we're on to actually get there than he is in his book. I mean, that's his profound concern is that just the United States is not capable of actually turning the corner in that way. So I just wondered, you know, what makes you more optimistic? Uh, even if you haven't read the book, it just seemed like you had, you had a, a difference of opinion there. You know, I, don't, I doubt it's that big. I mean, it's, a, it's just kind of just, uh, you know, your take, your take, sort of your outlook. I, I tend to be a 
a pretty optimistic person anyways. And so, so I see intellectually, I see intellectually that the service is actually embracing it, this idea of, of, of all the concepts that I was talking about, distributed lethality, all, all of these things that you started hearing about in recent years. So that was actually, that's actually an accomplishment to get them to take it seriously. It, it was a very, the, the services, the Navy, the Marines, and the other services were very slow to come to terms with, with, with the China challenge. So, as, so having, having at least admitted that it's a problem and starting to do things about it, I think, I think once we set ourselves on that trajectory, I think, I think, I think we're going to be all right. Now, I mean, there's always going to be a counter, a counterpoint for any point, just because there is also a lot of stuff, a lot of difficulties that we've had. It's sort of the, sort of the obvious things like uh, our collisions back in 2017, and basically seeing a, ma- a major amphibious warship burn to the uh, burn to the to the waterline in San Diego this year. So there's definitely there's definitely it's definitely not an, an, an un unequivocally rosy picture but i do think i do i do sense that the trend lines are, are starting to turn in our favor as far as it, i mean it's uh, as far as getting getting congress to buy into things like unmanned technologies and things like that we're having a hard time i think we are having a hard time selling them on that uh because because the navy since the turn of the century or thereabouts has had a series of a, a series of failed acquisition products or, or at least ones that really underperform like whether it's the ford aircraft carrier or the literal combat ship or whatever so I think that so I think there's definitely a political job to be to be done selling these concepts to Congress so that they actually so that they actually will fund it and and endorse it because ultimately they're the ones who make uh, strategic decisions. But uh, but yeah, thanks, James. Um, you know, in our in the last 30 years, um, we fought wars in the Middle East, we fought in Afghanistan, um, but there was never a fear that those hostile countries would take the war to the United States. When you described the battlefront on the first chain of islands, I guess the hope was that the battlefield would, would be contained to that region. Um, going back to World War II and the Battle of Midway, uh, Nimitz, when they broke the code, decided to send all of the U.S. aircraft carriers in the Pacific towards Midway Island. And Admiral King uh, thought it was insane that we would have no protection between Midway and the, the West Coast. Uh, but FDR went with Nimitz's decision to send the, uh, the aircraft carriers. Do you think that China would feel itself limited in its decision um, to battle the U.S. Pacific fleet on the first island chain, or do you think they may decide to bring the war directly to our west coast, um, potentially attacking Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, for example? Well, I mean, I mean, assuming that we follow the strategy that I laid out, and I think that I think that's actually a pretty good good reflection of what we have been doing. I guess we'll see see whether the next administration takes us in a different direction. But uh, but I mean, the, the idea the idea is actually not to let them come out, but I mean, keep keep them in the in the China seas where they we can we can blockade them or sink them if we have to or whatever the case may be. So we're trying to limit their ability to bring it to our own shores. Now, obviously, obviously controlling the the you know, first island chain doesn't necessarily keep them from going over the first island chain. Uh, with aircraft and missiles and so forth, but uh, but yeah, I mean that that would that would be a logical decision. It's something that's uh, certainly in Newport and elsewhere in the national security community today. Uh, wargaming is really making a comeback. It's, I mean, it's, it's almost like the 1930s with the, with all the wargaming in Newport uh, vis-a-vis Imperial Japan. So I, I certainly I certainly hope that we are considering that possibility because that would that would actually be a logical response. You know, in fact, I, in fact, that's that's what I might do myself if I were China is uh, basically throw us a roundhouse punch and invade the brunt of our offensive. So if they can figure out how to do it. You know, you, you might actually see that happen. Okay, Daniel, let's let's go to you. Um, 
You were talking about the Belt and Road Initiative and its implication for uh, West Asia. Um, there's an assumption that there's a quid pro quo if China builds these ports, if China builds these railroads, um, that it will bind China with these nations. Um, is that assumption correct, or will it, in, in effect, generate animosity between the, the local country and its feeling that it's been uh, being turned into a colonial outpost for the Chinese? Does greater Chinese interaction uh, does it create a perceived win-win for the local Asian country, or is it going to generate hostility in its own right? Well, I think the, the answer uh, gets to the heart of, of the broader argument that I try to make, which is that uh, it's, every answer is local. Um, so for every instance where you can find, say, a, uh, a leader in, in Tehran, in, in Iran, who sees a great utility in Chinese-backed investments, whether it's the Tehran metro system or a wider rail line that will run east-west, connecting uh, Iran back into Central Asia and beyond to, to China. Uh, for a leader like that, recognizes the the imperative of uh, opening some doors to trade and transit into a, you know a highly sanctioned country uh, and is really feeling backed into a corner for every leader like that you have another uh, individual in Iran or maybe maybe the the vast majority of the Iranian public who are actually quite wary and skeptical about what uh, Chinese investments uh, and Chinese goods that are flooding their markets, Chinese influence, and potentially even uh, some kind of a, a Chinese military presence along their, their coast, although that's not happened yet, something that might happen in the future. They're uh, intensely skeptical and nervous about that. And what you see is the potential for uh, a cleavage between the public's and their leaders, their leaders who are often uh, the ones who are best situated to take advantage of these Chinese investments, either personally or politically or at some level strategically, and uh, a swath at least of the public that, that really doesn't see much value in, in China's involvement at all, may, not just skeptical, but may actively oppose it. And so uh, what I find is, is, at least when you're looking in terms of a political economy of these individual states, it's important to kind of break out who's likely to win, who's likely to win more, who's likely to lose, and see how they're likely to respond to that. And each, uh, each of these states, even each of these localities, will be a little bit different. And, and that's really an important message for us to take home from the United States' perspective, rather than seeing this as a, sort of a vast relatively undifferentiated uh, theater of competition with China. This is not the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> uh, the peoples of this region, uh, in a sense, get a vote. Uh, their interests will matter quite a great deal in terms of shaping uh, opportunities available to China and also shaping opportunities available to us. So, um, you know, that's a, probably a better way for us to look at it. And I wanted to follow up with a question about Chinese-Russian relations. Um, it seems you know, Nixon did his best to kind of peel China away from Russia um, in the early 1970s, and it seemed to have done so for an extended period of time. Uh, but recently it seems that Putin and Xi's relationship is quite good, that they see eye to eye and they uh, oppose actions by the West uh, together, and I call it an uh, anti-democratic uh, axis. Um, but as China 
as economic influence expands into areas like Kazakhstan, which had previously been clearly in Russia's sphere of influence, um, will this turn into a contest uh, in this Western Asian between China and Russia? And there's also this very long Chinese-Russian border, um, which you know could also be problematic. And I guess, what do you think of the Chinese-Russian relationship in this context? Absolutely. So uh, it's one of the core questions in Eurasia, uh, how Russia will ultimately respond to what looks like at least a creeping, if not a galloping degree of Chinese influence. First, economic influence, followed by political influence, and then in some cases, security and even military um, access and influence. And uh, the answer, I think, uh, you really have to see this at least at two levels. The first is the level that drives the closeness that we're now seeing between China and Russia. And that's at the global level. Both of them at this moment are more concerned about the United States and to a lesser extent about Western Europe and and East Asia and the pressure that they're feeling from those outside players. For, For Russia, it's pressure over issues like Ukraine. For China, it's the other issues that we've already been discussing having to do with uh, global strategic competition. They see the United States as their principal geopolitical problem. And so since Moscow and Beijing see us as the problem, uh, they see a lot of reasons to at least uh, work together. And you're right that uh, that uh, Putin and Xi Jinping are closer together uh, in many ways than we've seen China and Russia in decades. However, In continental Eurasia are a number of points of potential friction between the two of them because uh, while China's influence is principally economic at this stage in places like Kazakhstan, I I believe that that is translating into political and then, as I said before, uh, potentially military access and influence over time. And Russia, which has enjoyed the dominant traditional place, pride of place in this region, which still sees itself as the dominant security player throughout uh, uh, certainly Central Asia, but also in some ways in the Middle East and elsewhere, will not sit, I think, idly by, uh, or would not sit idly by and let China eat its lunch, if not for the fact that it was principally occupied dealing with us. And so the question there is in terms of kind of two competing timelines, uh, which thing will happen first, Russia realizing and waking up to China's increasing influence uh, in its own backyard, or, uh, or Russia kind of coming to terms with the West Uh, or still maintaining some degree of of deep friction there. Um, If one day Russia wakes up uh, and is less concerned about what the United States is doing, more concerned about what China is doing, will it then be too late for it to do anything about it? Um, And flipping over to some of what we heard from Rory earlier about what's happened in Southeast Asia, what we've seen there is Southeast Asian states, including uh, Indo-Pacific states like India and and even Australia, woke up earlier, uh, early enough to the threat they now see posed by uh, China's uh, creeping military presence uh, that they have been able to uh, rekindle ties with one another and build increasingly tight ties with the United States and actually push back in the ways that he's describing. It's not clear to me that in Central Asia that storyline will play the same way. The timeline may be very different. China may steal a march on Russia, so to speak, and Russia may be uh, by that point relatively powerless to do much about it. Uh, this is a final question uh, for, for this segment. Um, Daniel, I'd like to ask about Korea. Um, obviously, you've got a South Korea and you've got a North Korea and China 
is, has historically been allied very strongly with North Korea. Um, but I think relations in South, between South Korea and China have improved dramatically. How do you think about, will China choose one over the other? Will it continue to play one off versus the other? Um, and do we have any real concern that South Korea will... Um, if you notice, Roy Metcalf did mention in the quad that South Korea was included in that group uh, or would be the next one to get to the quint. Um, how do you think about the relations between South Korea in this, uh, as it chooses between China and the quad? Well, I have to admit that I don't consider myself a Korea hand, but uh, with that in mind, I would, I would simply point out that uh, this isn't just a story of China, Korea, China, North Korea, China, South Korea, but this also includes uh, the United States. And part of the challenge here is what type of player the United States uh, presents to South Korea and whether we are putting South Korea in an increasingly challenging spot, having to um, put itself... Uh, in a place that it does not feel comfortable going with its enormous neighbor in China and putting itself in a dangerous spot in dealing with North Korea, even more dangerous than already exists? Or are we trying to work uh, more closely with our South Korean uh, partners and allies? Um, I would anticipate that one of the changes that we're likely to see uh, in, a, in a Biden administration will be a more careful uh, and subtle uh, courtship of South Korea, recognizing that they are one of our important allies in the region. We can't afford to uh, make their position more difficult with respect to China. We have to recognize the bind that they're in. And flipping it around, with that happening, with, a, I, th I hope, a warming of U.S.-South Korean ties, uh, North Korea and China are sort of stuck together, um, whether they like it or not. And neither one seems terribly in love with the other, but they're, in, in effect, North Korea is a creation of Russia, of, sorry, of China. China's left with it. China's going to be left holding the bag. Um, so I would see that as sort of a reversion to past practice um, with South Korea gradually gravitating back uh, toward us, I think, in, in hopefully helpful ways. Thank you. All right. Um, I'd like to pivot the show now to our final segment, which is on business formation and labor economics. Um, our first speaker in this segment is John Haltewanger. John is a professor of economics at the University of Maryland, and he will be discussing business formation. Go ahead, John. Thank you. So I'm going to talk about the surprising boom in startups that is occurring in the U.S. during this pandemic. Based on the Census Bureau's business formation statistics, in the third quarter of 2020, applications for new businesses hit an all-time high. In the third quarter, there were 1.6 million applications for new businesses. This is more than twice any quarter since the data have been collected, which is since 2004. To help understand the surprising boom, I need to tell you about the nature of these applications. The business formation statistics tracks applications for new employer identification numbers, otherwise known as EINs. All new employer businesses must have an EIN. And it's also advantageous for many non-employer businesses, non-employer businesses, by the way, are businesses that don't hire workers, to have an EIN if they do business with other businesses. The application includes queries about the nature of the new business, including whether it is planning on hiring workers. This permits classifying the new applications in the series that track likely new employers and new non-employers. Of the 1.6 million increase, 
About 1 million are likely non-employers, and about 600,000 are likely employers. For both of these categories, the third quarter in 2020 is the highest quarter on record. Research has shown that this new application series closely tracks actual business startups. For example, for employer businesses, the correlation between the new application series for likely employers and actual new employer startups is very high, it's 0.93. In considering this correlation, applications tend to lead the actual startups by two to four quarters. Of these two components, the more surprising one in terms of the surge in the third quarter of 2020 is, is for likely employers. So why is this more surprising? In the Great Recession, we observed an increase in applications for likely non-employers. It was not as large as we are seeing now, but it's consistent with a general pattern that self-employment activity has a countercyclical component. Individuals who are unemployed are more likely to engage in self-employment activity in recessions as a stopgap activity. However, in the Great Recession, applications for likely employers plummeted, and in turn, actual employer startups plummeted. Both of these series only slowly recovered in the post-Great Recession. Research shows that the weak recovery of employer business startups helps account for the overall very slow recovery from the Great Recession, including what has been a very anemic post-Great Recession productivity growth. Productivity growth has been quite anemic in the United States since, since 2010. This is consistent with findings that employer startups are critical, not only for job creation, but also innovation and productivity growth. So in contrast, we are seeing the early signs of a boom in employer startups in the COVID-19 recession. So what is different? Well, we don't yet fully understand what's going on, but let me give you some ideas. First, there's much evidence that the COVID-19 contraction has led to a restructuring of the U.S. economy. We are uncertain how permanent this restructuring will be, but it's likely that this recession has accelerated long-run trends. For example, the shift in retail trade away from bricks and mortar stores to e-commerce has been ongoing for some time. COVID-19 has dramatically accelerated this pattern. Consistent with this, about 50% of this large surge in applications for new businesses are in the non-store retailer industry. That is, uh, businesses that are going to be engaged in e-commerce. Other sectors with large increases are also consistent with restructuring. And considering what this implies for the recovery, we need to recognize a number of areas of risk. For one, most new businesses fail, and the roller coaster ride of the virus may, take, may make this an especially uh, difficult time for new businesses. For another, it is likely the case that in spite of the surge in startups, net entry, that is the difference between entry and exit, is actually highly negative. Although we don't actually have as good a data on business closings as we have on startups in 2020. Next year, 2021, we'll have great data on how many businesses closed, but in terms of real-time data, not so good. This, this likely very negative net entry is obviously a drag on the economy. Finally, while restructuring of this type tends to be productivity enhancing in the long run, that is, it tends to be the case that the businesses that exit are low producti lower productivity businesses than the entering businesses that replace them, 
This is a very costly process for both firms and workers, and these costs can be exacerbated uh, in recessions. Still, I will end on an optimistic note. Conditional on this very large adverse shock to the U.S. economy that is ongoing, it is a hopeful sign that startups are surging. Moreover, it is likely the case that startups will play a critical role in the recovery from this contraction. Thank you. Thanks, John. We're going to do the questions and answers uh, for John immediately after uh, Casey speaks. Our, our next speaker is Casey Mulligan. He is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and he was a former chief economist uh, for Trump's Council of Economic Advisors. His new book is entitled, You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. Go ahead, Casey. Yeah, I'll begin with a quote from President Eisenhower in his last days in office when he said, in holding scientific research in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite, Eisenhower said. This is the real substance of populism, which is, I see as a reaction to flawed governing by a small, unelected, and insulated ruling class. During my time in government, I got a front row seat for seeing what got people in flyover countries so upset. Not only were serious mistakes made, but the technocrats have little incentive to find, let alone fix them. The least bad mechanism for addressing such problems are elected officials. Their contact with and accountability to voters brings a valuable set of knowledge lacked by the technocrats, sometimes tragically. With the six minutes I have, I select a couple gloomy parts, but much of the contest between populists and technocrats is more upbeat and hilarious at times. Today I'll talk about uh, the individual mandate and the opioid epidemic. The individual mandate from the Affordable Care Act, which forced people to purchase government-improved health insurance or pay a hefty penalty. Trump campaigned vigorously against it in 2016 and in 2020 repeatedly bragged about how he got rid of it. I'm waiting for President Obama's memoir next week, but already we know from the memoirs of his loyal staff that Obama privately regretted having that mandate because he got a sense from voters that something was seriously wrong with it. But he deferred to his technocrats, whose analysis we now see to be a combination of sloppy and gullible. They, and some Republicans too, said that a health insurance market cannot function without a mandate because everyone would wait until the day they got sick to sign up for coverage. Probably another factor is that influential insurance companies, of course, don't mind forcing consumers to open their wallets. Regardless, the technocrats' justifications misses the fact that Obamacare plans are heavily subsidized. If somebody turns down a subsidized plan, taxpayers ought to be sending them a thank you note and maybe ask Obama to do better because his plans cannot be given away. Instead, Obamacare slapped the disobedient consumer with its infamous penalty. Now, in the opioid epidemic, technocrats have also failed and continue to fail in policies related to fatal drug overdoses. The fatality rate was high and growing for about a decade before Washington even noticed. My book has a number of metrics as to how even in the second decade the subject was a low priority by comparison with the importance that people in flyover country placed on it. 
The federal government fueled the epidemic from the beginning. It subsidized opioids up and down the prescription supply chain, which made them cheaper and widely available. Both Republicans and Democrats do not want to acknowledge this unintended consequence of their programs and indeed have taken steps to bury evidence on this. It's not easy to alleviate a problem when its origins cannot be acknowledged. Aside from prescriptions, opioids are also manufactured illicitly in the form of heroin and fentanyl analogs. Many times during the Clinton and Bush administrations, illicit fentanyl would momentarily appear in U.S. markets and then law enforcement would successfully drive it out. But the Obama administration made it a priority to end the war on drugs, as they called it, which meant no longer putting drug dealers in federal prison unless they committed a violent crime. Immediately, fentanyl came into the U.S. market with a, in a big, cheap, and permanent way. I have a lot of sympathy for ending the war on drugs, but ending that war, especially by way of refusing to enforce existing laws, has consequences, and they ought to be acknowledged, and the people in flyover country might find them relevant. At the same time, the federal government, having just woken up to the epidemic, started restricting prescriptions. This might have reduced fatalities if it had been done 10 or 15 years earlier, but by doing it at a time when there are cheap, illegal alternatives, the new policies are doing the opposite of the intended effect. Even today, technocrats are nowhere near understanding what is happening. So many of the federal agencies are insulated from elected officials by a growing web of technical, managerial, and legal complications. How can an outsider ever succeed in leading such a complex organization without the sympathy and cooperation of the veteran staff? It's only natural that cabinet secretary appointments go to those who had previously been secretary or deputy secretary. To the relief of the special interests profiting from federal regulation, the door is thereby slammed on the possibility to discover and acknowledge past policy failures. Because most technocrats still only ridicule flyover country rather than acknowledging any real substance in populism, populism ironically is not going away. We will see Trump the sequel, or perhaps an improved version, but either way, the disruption of the technocrats has only just begun. Thank you. Great. All right, so um, I'm going to start with questions for John, and then we'll, uh, we'll conclude with our questions for Casey. Uh, and Casey, please feel free to jump in with John. John, I want to uh, understand a little bit more about who are starting all these businesses. Um, do, you, do you think that given the long-term unemployment in, I'll call it transportation and in hospitality, um, and maybe in some other segments of the economy, that those workers recognize that they won't be able to get back to work for a very extended period of time, that they decided to go uh, do self-employment in another field and get those EIN numbers? or you sort of emphasize that they were more e-commerce related. Who are these people? What are they doing? And why should we be so uh, cautiously optimistic about it? Well, really good question, and we don't fully know. But, but I, I, I think we've seen in the past that uh, there's a distinct difference between those that are applying for an EIN and likely to be just self-employed and not hiring workers, and those that are applying for an EIN and, and moving towards um, becoming an employer. And I want to emphasize again that the, the series that we track that are likely employers tracks actual business startups that hire workers really well. 
So, so I think the, your storyline of the long-term unemployed uh, applying for EINs and, and trying, trying to engage in the market in some way or another, uh, and, and given that they, they, they don't see their, I'll say their previous career, uh, at least starting up anytime soon, I think largely fits the, the, the non-employers. It's still impressive just how, how big a surge we've seen in there. And, and uh, in many ways, it's a healthy thing. Maybe it's not an ideal thing. It's a healthy thing in a recession that individuals who, who are unemployed are trying to get into the market with self-employment activity. But starting up in a career business is, is a whole different ballgame. And, and I think that we can be more optimistic about that group. And I think that that group sees market opportunities in the current environment. John, hi, John. Let me, let me jump in here with another question. Is the um, this is very interesting the the way that you highlighted the restructuring of the economy that may be underway now. Are there ways in which U.S. policy has been helpful or hindering in facilitating this restructuring? What would you advise uh, the government to do to to facilitate the process you've identified? So, so ironically, you, you might argue that the PPP program. Well, 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 maybe a fantastic idea early in the uh, pandemic. Re- reinstating that would probably not be such a good idea. Why? Because it, you got to remember that there's um, there, there's always a, a lot of business failure of existing businesses, and and and, the, and in many ways the last thing you want to do is to uh, prop up businesses that that likely are not going to make it. Now, early in the pandemic, there was just so much uncertainty about obviously what the nature of this was, how this was going to change things, how long this was going to last. A PPP program could be justified. But as we get further and further into the program, uh, a PPP program is, it, it, it is likely not a good idea. Now, it's still the case, having said that, that uh, the, the share of unemployed, unemployed that are permanently laid off um, ha, has been growing. And, and it's exactly the kind of works, uh, workers that uh, Larry was talking about earlier. Uh, uh, providing additional assistance to that group, uh, I, I think, uh, still makes a lot of sense. There's always the concern, of course, when you when you when you extend unemployment benefits, uh, uh, you know, it, it, th- that this could act as a disincentive for work. I, I actually, you know, there's, there, I actually think the evidence is not that strong that that there is such a large disincentive effect there. You should always worry about that. Um, and and I I think the U.S. system of tending to trying to smooth out consumption for workers and letting them reallocate rather than propping up businesses that aren't going to make it is a better idea. Uh, This is sort of a random question, but given the emphasis and importance you think are in the EIN data, do you think the government or specifically the IRS should restructure the form so that you economists can garner more information as to what the purpose and the viability of these enterprises are and what industries are going into and um, et cetera to, to better understand the dynamics of the economy? I think that might help, but, but actually I think what we ought to be doing is trying to get a hold of or, or stay on top of, I'll say, actual business startups and actual business closings on a much more timely basis. To a large extent, we track these through administrative data. It's fantastic administrative data the U.S. statistical agencies have, but they don't process it very quickly. And, and it would be, for precisely the reasons you're talking about, it would be of a, a, a great interest 
to, to, to be able to track that on a more timely basis. In principle, that's possible. And so I would, I would put uh, emphasis on trying to track uh, business, actual business openings and actual business closings. You know, this new series, this business formation statistics, gives us a, gives us a window that says, look, this is really important, particularly in this current environment, to get a sense of how this restructuring is going. And so, again, I, I, I would go after the actual startups and the actual closings. I want to ask a question about large versus small firms. Um, one of your students, John, uh, Chad Spearson, uh, spoke in our call uh, early in the uh, COVID period. And he mentioned that in a very unusual over the long term, uh, large firms' return on capital is substantially higher than smaller firms and that they're seeing greater concentrations of success as the firms get larger. Um, you mentioned that in every uh, c- continuous in time, um, firms go bust and firms should die, and we should get new firms. Um, and that these new firms are really the generators of both job creation, enhanced uh, productivity, and I'll call it just general business dynamism. How do you think about the large firm versus small firm a quandary in the context of productivity coming from these new upstarts. I think the key thing is firm age, right? That's the way to reconcile what I'm saying and what Chad's saying. So uh, small mature firms are not the sources of dynamism, innovation, and productivity growth. And, and among startups, it, it, I already, I, as I said earlier in my remarks, most startups fail. Many of them don't grow. But out of every cohort of star, startups, we see a relatively small fraction grow really rapidly, and they play a critical role in uh, both job creation, innovation, and productivity growth. In many ways, they push the existing large mature firms. The large mature firms are large and mature because they, because they were at one time one of these high growth young firms. If, if you go look at the, at the, you know, what we call the big tech firms, all, every single one of them, if you look at, at their first year, they all had less than 10 employees. So. So in many ways, the, the, you know, sort of the, the amazing thing about the U.S. economy is that uh, uh, relatively small entrepreneurs, a small fraction of them, play an outsized role over the course of their life cycle. You know, when you look at um, the stock market, um, largely capitalized value, large manufacturing firms have sort of stagnated, not only this year, but pre-COVID as well. And the tech firms have done exceedingly well. Um, if you look at the relative portion of the S&P 500 that's in tech, it's, it's rising quite dramatically. And the recent outperformance of the NASDAQ versus the S&P 500 is indicative of that transition. Um, you've been thinking or mentioning that uh, a lot of these new firms will be in the tech sector. Um, do you see this as just a furthering of that same or an acceleration of that same trend out of, I'll call it, high capital intensive manufacturing business into uh, low cap, low, uh, low capital required high technology businesses? I think so, but, but, but I, it's useful just to talk a little bit about what's happened in the last 20 years versus what's happening this year. So, so one of the things that started to happen in the post-2000 period that the guys in the high-tech sector don't, don't always like to uh, talk about is actually we've, we've seen a, we saw a decline in the pace of startups, particularly in high-tech, exactly about the time that productivity growth in high-tech started to decline as well. And so uh, it, there, there's lots of discussion in the policy debate, for example, now that the, the big guys, the big tech, 
often are gobbling up the, the, the small guys. Um, and, and the question is, you know, are, are they doing that to, to, to stifle uh, innovation rather than to, uh, to, to, to pick it up and accelerate? And, and, you know, that, and that's a, something we don't fully understand, but it's certainly something to be concerned about. So entering 2020, we, we actually had pretty anemic productivity growth in high tech, and we had uh, uh, quite anemic startups in high tech. And so the question is whether this, you know, obviously this is, obviously COVID is a terrible thing in terms of what its impact is on the economy and society. But the question is whether this has really shaken things up and so that we're going to see a surge in startups, including in high tech, uh, uh, because of the nature of the restructuring that's going on. Do you think at all about uh, the geography as in the United States where these startups go happen? Are they concentrated in places like Silicon Valley and other high-tech spots? Or um, one of the implications of COVID is that you can work from anywhere. Are we seeing potentially startups spread across uh, geographic regions that otherwise had not been as uh, noticeable before? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And the answer is, I think the answer is yes, that, that indeed the folk wisdom Indeed, the visa industry is not only focused on, you know, all the money sitting out in the Silicon Valley and, and, and what startups were out there, we're all out there in the Silicon Valley. And, and we have seen, a, by the way, we've seen a surge in these startups all over the country. Interestingly, the, the, the region that led the country is the South. Um, and do we fully understand uh, why? The answer is no. But actually, we've seen a surge uh, across all, all regions of the country. And so I I. You know, we, we, we used to talk uh, that, that uh, uh, technology was going to enable us to spread out, and, and it didn't seem like that was happening. If anything, it, technology was encouraging lots of clustering, like you're talking about in Silicon Valley and other information technology centers. An interesting question is whether we, you could say, this, again, this terrible event that has uh, enabled us to see, oh, yeah, we can actually do lots of things remotely, including uh, work together uh, uh, via this advanced technology. All right, let's bring Casey into the conversation. Casey, um, you were mentioning how the opioid epidemic was a consequence of the federal government subsidizing opioids over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, you articulate that story in your book, but I don't think um, the listeners or this audience is as familiar with it. In what way is the federal government responsible for this uh, opioid epidemic? What what particular actions, regulations, and legislations trigger that? Well, there there were subsidies injected uh, throughout the supply chain. So starting um, with the physicians, um, there was this new idea of uh, that the pain is the fifth vital sign, um, and it was recommended that 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 be given attention as well as your your heart rate and those other things and furthermore that you not did you take the patient's word for it uh, so the patient says they have pain that means they have pain um, and, and that was kind of a new idea go around now it's one thing to have new ideas uh, we can welcome that but the uh, federal government decided well we're going to penalize um, hospitals and other providers who don't go along with that idea. So the, the physicians pretty soon realized that writing opioid prescriptions um, was something that got them better CMS uh, dollars. 
and then on the patient and yeah. end of the how did that result in spurring the epidemic itself? Well, the, when you would check out of the hospital, the doctor would make sure he sent you home with opioids, whether you needed it or not, because that was going to increase his hospital's reimbursement from, from the Medicare and Medicaid services. And were those just sold to third parties, or were they used and then became addictive? What was your thought there? Some of each. People, uh, people you know, when you have a jar of 90 of them instead of a jar of seven, you know, you, you might take them and it might be a habit. Um, you might give them away. Um, a lot, a lot of the people who were addicted to prescription opioids said they obtained them either just as a gift from somebody else, or you know the clean lay takes them and sells them out on the market. Um, and so, and sometimes the elderly people themselves. Uh, I was not allowed to say this in the government, but we know. I, in fact, I've seen it with my own eyes in Walgreens in uh, Chicago, that sometimes the elderly people themselves will. Uh, go out and sell the pills that they don't need. Rick, you had a question uh, the on the ACA? Oh. This is, yeah, no, this, so let's, yeah, let's, let's go, Casey, let's move to the, to the ACA individual mandate for a minute. So you described the, the technocrats' era as being both sloppy and gullible, I believe. So I want to try to drill down a little on that. So it seems that the rationale, and tell me if I get this right, for the ACA, might, you might have three parts to it uh, for the individual mandate. One is that... Um, you know, a lot of people who are healthy and who will remain healthy, they simply won't enter the system. So, you know, they won't be there to subsidize the people who are going to use a lot of the, 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 uh, the healthcare dollars. And then you also have people who are unduly optimistic about their ability to remain healthy. And then when they are healthy, I mean, then when they do take ill third, those people will actually impose costs on the rest of the system, right? If they're uninsured, you know, their illness is going to create some, some external costs, uh, which we are going to bear as a society because we're not going to let people die in the streets. So um, if those are the three sort of rationales for the individual mandate, you need the healthy people to subsidize, people are unduly optimistic, and then people's ill health creates externalities. Where's the, what's the error there? Why, why, why does that not amount to a sufficient case for an individual mandate? Well, the, the sort of things you articulated, there, there's economics papers about that. <laughs> but, but all those papers are stylized in that they don't have insurance being subsidized. So you say, well, the healthy people don't have enough reason to sign up. Yeah, if, if there were no subsidies, they would, that their own personal interest might not be enough to get them signed up and maintain an insurance market. But that's not the facts on the ground with Obamacare. Obamacare plans are subsidized massively subsidized, something like $7,000 per person per year. So the Treasury is already giving them a big push to counteract some of those things that you talked about. And so the things that you talked about, you'd have to sit down and quantify them and show that they're bigger than the 7,000 a year, which you're never going to do. You're never going to get it close. Um, you know, something like uncompensated care would be, on average, per uninsured person, be something like eight or $900 a year, not $7,000. Um, and, and so that was the mistake to take the stylized model, which is useful for many purposes, um, and not upgrade it to rep, rep, represent the realities on the ground. And number one is the huge taxpayer subsidy. And, and, and so is your argument that the better approach would be to provide a taxpayer subsidy to align individuals uh, incentives, motivation, decision-making with the public interest, and then if you have the right subsidy level, you don't need the mandate? Is that your approach? 
No, I'm just saying that the reality, that, just the reality, it's in the law. Okay, it's the law of the land. There shall be a subsidy. That that is in oh, the no, law. No, no, so, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, but I'm, but I'm saying, do you do you think that the, that is is the proper approach? So if the if the approach with the mandate, well, you should wrong, do one or the other, I guess. And, and you know, the, the question is the fairness and who pays for the mandate. You know, the mandate kind of focuses the financial burden on on the people who don't want to sign up, um, and the subsidy spreads it out. Now, whether you that I'm not an expert on fairness. That's the kind of choice. But they did all the above in Obamacare, and that was the problem. Casey, right. um, you're the uh, only person I've ever met who uh, worked in the Trump White House. Um, what was it? What was it like? How uh, how would you describe a meeting in the Oval Office uh, that Trump was there and organizing? Um, can you explain how he would use Twitter to articulate his message? Um, how was he different from previous executives, um, and did you find his work process effective? Yeah, he. Uh, first of all, there's. I never saw an electronic device in in the Oval Office. Uh, I know under, people want to, and Trump wants you to think that he's just walking around with his iPhone and tapping stuff in there. If you look on his Twitter, every single tweet comes from Twitter for iPhone, but I, I don't believe any of them come from Twitter or for iPhone, or hardly any. He, he has a Twitter guy, Dan Scavino, who has a laptop. I won't tell you the kind of laptop, but he has a laptop. And when the president wants to tweet something, he yells out, Dan, Dan, come in, come in here. And he comes in with his laptop, and, and a t- tweet gets typed, typed and sent out. And uh, some tweets are like that. Many tweets come from his staff. I, I wrote some tweets, and it would go through meetings and everything, and it end up in Dan's laptop, and Dan would put it out there, and it would say, from Donald Trump, Twitter for iPhone. So... Um, I mean, he's, he's a populist president. He understands better than anyone that where his support comes from, and it's not from Washington. 95% of Washington voted against him this time and the first time. Um, he knows it comes from flyover country, and he's got to communicate with them somehow um, without the, uh, the elite class getting in, in his way and, and trying to color his message. So he wants to talk directly, and he knows Twitter is, is the best way he has for that. Um, and he needs people tuned in. He's got 80 million followers now, so he's got to have some entertainment value there um, for people. Um, you know, he's. I think there's uh, people on this phone who are executives of major companies. You you meet those type of people, even if you don't know them real well. It's pretty quickly you recognize that they're. This is somebody with special talents. That's not an average person, and that's why they got up to the top of whatever field they're in. And yet you get that impression from Trump right away. The thing that I found very unusual, I've never seen in a company executive or in a president of a major university, he, his ability to, I call it managing a social network, he can do, make a few words to really get people in the line. He did it with the staff. You know, he'd say a few words, and all of us kind of know where we fit. And, and we've all seen him do that, you know, with, with millions of people in the public um, he really has a knack for that. Um, I think it's something he practiced. Uh, he's, he's not a young person. He had a long life before the White House. I think that's something he had practice and he got good at. Um, he's not an ideologue, so maybe that's different than previous presidents, definitely different than a lot of politicians. He, he's not a libertarian or a liberal or a conservative or any of those things. He He's, he's an experimenter. I, I think the word they use in business is fa- fast failure. 
He wants to try things. Uh, he wants people to think that it's really serious what he's doing and that it's not an experiment. Like all experimenters have the Hawthorne effect type of problem. And he does a great job of making you think he's for real when he says we're going to shut down the Mexican border um, or something like that. But he's just laying it out there, trial balloon. He gets feedback. He's a really good listener. Um, he's really good at saying, as you, again, if you look on his Twitter, saying things to people that he's going to go, go, go against you, but he'll say what you're thinking better than you could say it. And then when he ends up going against you, you know, you can't really say the man didn't hear me <laughs> because actually the man said it better than I could say it myself. Um, so he's a really good listener and he gets the feedback and that's kind of how he finds his way to these different difficult uh, problems. The individual mandate would be one of them. He was actually for the individual mandate um, for some of the technocratic reasons. Um, but unlike Obama, he would, was really listening carefully and decided to change his mind 180 degrees. Took a lot of criticism for doing that, but now it's, I think it's the, one of the things he's the most proud of. And Casey, what do you think are the, the lessons of this election for the, tech, for, for the group that you refer to as the technocrats? Well, I think some humility um, and, you know, I would like it if they would consider their own mistakes. They have no incentive to do that. Um, I think disruption is really the, the only thing that's going to work and will happen. So I guess they got to be prepared for that. Um, I mean, it, when you, if you've got a long resume in Washington, that means you were there for a lot of past policies, and those that are failed you're in, invested in, whether it be wars in the Middle East or the, what you've done on opioid policy or any number of things. Um, this is the problem, and people have noticed that the – that this is how it works. Uh, millions of people have noticed that, and and Trump has detected. He's an entrepreneur in politics. He just realized this is an opportunity. Other politicians are not going out and grabbing votes in that way, and and that's what he's done. Casey, this is John Holtwanger. I I wanted to go back a little bit to your both your discussion of flyover country, as you called it, and and the opioid crisis, and so the. I'm, Alan Kruger wrote a, a paper a, a, a few years ago where he, you know, he he, uh, he was not the only one. It, you know, the opioid crisis has been especially uh, bad in in uh, I'll say low income, low labor force participation areas in the in what you call the flyover country. And Alan argued actually the causality was going from the kind of mistakes that you're talking about on opioids to to the economic uh, you know uh, I'll say misery of that group. Um, but you could make the case it went the other way, right? That indeed uh, there were other things going on that that had that over the over the last couple of decades that that groups that found themselves in flyer country uh, were not doing well economically, and and opioids turned out to be uh, kind of a, a worst case scenario. I'm kind of curious what you thought your thoughts about the causality between between the I economics and the opioids. I think there's both causality. And, 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 in the sense you mentioned, but there's actually a third channel that is totally ignored, which is the supply side. And that, that's kind of been the thing that's been totally overlooked, um, other than pointing to the companies and saying the companies are bad, uh, but on the supply side of these things. And one of the things that, you know, the NAFTA, people talk about NAFTA and jobs and small manufacturing towns shutting down, but, you know, crossing the border with those legal goods and services from Mexico since the mid-1990s has also been heroin. Um, and so there's actually a strong complementarity between the trade in 
I mean, the physical routes that goods take for illegal goods and illegal goods. Um, and that's not been researched. Actually, this is one of the things I, I said they've been burying evidence in the government. This is one of the things that's been buried. I've been trying to use FOIA to get, get some of the documents out of there. But I think, I think it's fairly obvious. I mean, definitely you saw NAFTA and heroin prices move together. Um, and so that would be another fa factor. You know, your, your coastal cities had already had cheap uh, heroin or cheap-ish cheap heroin from, from many years before, but cheap heroin is very new to the interior of the country. All right, this is the part of the show where I ask my speakers for notes of optimism. Sometimes during COVID, we can get overwhelmed by the negative, but I think there's still much to be happy for. Um, so let me go around to our remaining speakers and, and end on a, a positive note. Uh, John, do you want to say something that you view out there to be quite optimistic about? Well, it was actually part of my remarks. I, this is a terrible crisis, and we're struggling through it. But I'm very pleased to see the entrepreneurial spirit of the United States is alive and well. Great. Casey, what about you? Yeah, you know, I, I, I sometimes call Trump a Blackberry. When the Blackberry came out, it was awesome, right? But there was something better coming along. And so I, I think that's the optimism. And there's plenty of things not to like about Trump. But the, the people who have been overlooked are not overlooked any, anymore. And they, and they realize that there's a way to participate um, that can be to their benefit. And I, I think that's great news. I mean, uh, the alternative would be they become resigned to never really having their voice count. Uh, they can never compete with the technocrats and the academic scales and so on. Um, so I, I think that's a very optimistic uh, result for both the te technocrats and the, uh, the others. Daniel, are you still with us? Can, do you, are, what note of optimism do you have from, uh, from your dealings in China? Yeah, I, I am here. Uh, I, will, I will focus my optimism principally on a shift in Washington with respect to, uh, to institutions and to investing in places like the State Department. Uh, looking ahead, I think, you know, the State Department's had a, had a rough four years, and a lot of people have left. I think uh, people who have worked there for decades have thought that it needed a shakeup. Well, it certainly had a, a shakeup, but now there's an opportunity for building it and building it new and building it better for, for the, you know, hopefully the next century. Uh, maybe some, some really transformative changes, bringing in different types of people, different ideas. Um, this will help us in our competition with China, uh, help us better understand the world, help us, help us better communicate. Um, so uh, no time like the present for that. Great. Um, all right. I would like to uh, make a plug alert for our call next week. Um, we'll have six new speakers. Um, we're starting with Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. Uh, we'll discuss the implications of the Georgia runoff and what the Senate will look like if it's 50-50 versus 52-48 Republican. Um, we're going to have Ramanan Laxman-Marian discuss COVID, and then we're going to have a, a segment on entertainment and COVID. Uh, the four speakers will include Sam Hoffman, who is the producer for Madam Secretary, Phil Abraham, the director from the TV show Ozark, Josh Goldstein, um, who is formerly head of marketing at Universal Studios, was responsible for the marketing for Borat 2 movie that just came out on Amazon, and finally James Gray, a uh, choreographer who is doing a, uh, the production of the producers in Tokyo and how to, uh, in COVID, do that from New York City. All right, with that, that ends uh, this session of What Happens Next. 
I'd like to thank our speakers for their time and their insights. Um, and I also would like to thank my co-host, Rick Banks, as always, and all the listeners at home who have given their time to enjoy this program. Thank you so much, and you may disconnect. Thanks, guys, for your participation. <laughs>